0: Chapter 43 of The Last Chronicle of Barset by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Steve Goff. Chapter 43. Mr Crosby goes into the city. I've known the city now for more than 10 years Mr Crosby and I never knew money to be so tight as it is at this moment. The best commercial bills going can't be done under 9 and any other kind of paper can't so much as get itself looked at. Thus spoke Mr Musselboro. He was seated in Dobbs Broughton's armchair, in Dobbs Broughton's room, in Hook Court, on the hind legs of which he was balancing himself comfortably, and he was communicating his experience in city matters to our old friend Adolphus Crosby, of whom we may surmise that he would not have been there, at that moment, in Hook Court, if things had been going well with him. It was now past eleven o'clock, "'and he should have been at his office at the West End. "'His position in his office was no doubt high enough "'to place him beyond the reach of any special inquiry "'as to such absences. "'But it is generally felt that when the Crosbys of the West End "'have calls into the city about noon, "'things in the world are not going well with them. "'The man who goes into the city to look for money "'is generally one who does not know "'where to get money when he wants it. "'Mr. Musselboro on this occasion kept his hat on his head, "'and there was something in the way in which he balanced his chair.' which was in itself an offence to Mr. Crosby's personal dignity. It was hardly as yet two months since Mr. Broughton had assured him, in that very room, that there need not be the slightest anxiety about his bill. Of course it could be renewed, the commission being duly paid. As Mr. Broughton explained on that occasion, that was his business. There was nothing he liked so much as renewing bills for such customers as Mr. Crosby, and he was very candid at that meeting, "'explaining how he did this branch of his business, "'raising money on his own credit at four or five per cent, "'and lending it on his own judgment at eight or nine. "'Mr. Crosby did not feel himself then called upon to exclaim "'that what he was called upon to pay was about twelve, "'perfectly understanding the comfort and grace of euphony. "'But he had turned it over in his mind, "'considering whether twelve per cent was not more than he ought to be mocked "'for the accommodation he wanted.' Now, at the moment, he would have been glad to get it from Mr. Musselborough without further words for twenty. Things had much changed with Adolphus Crosby, when he was driven to make morning visits to such a one as Mr. Musselborough, with the view of having a bill renewed for two hundred and fifty pounds. In his early life, he had always had the merit of being a careful man as to money. In some other respects, he had gone astray very foolishly, as has been partly explained in our early chapters but up to the date of his marriage with Lady Alexandrina de Courcy he had never had dealings in Hook Court or in any such locality. Money troubles had then come upon him. Lady Alexandrina, being the daughter of a countess, had high ideas, and when, very shortly after his marriage, he had submitted to a separation from his noble wife, he had found himself and his income to be tied up inextricably in the hands of one Mr. Mortimer Gazebee, a lawyer who had married one of his wife's sisters.' It was not that Mr. Gazebee was dishonest, nor did Crosby suspect him of dishonesty, but the lawyer was so wedded to the interest of the noble family with which he was connected, that he worked for them all as an inferior spider might be supposed to work, which, from the infirmity of its nature, was compelled by its instincts to be catching flies always for superior spiders. Mr. Mortimer Gazebee had in this way entangled Mr. Crosby in his web on behalf of those noble spiders the de Courcys and our poor friend, in his endeavour to fight his way through the web, had fallen into the hands of the hook-court firm of Mrs. Van Siever, Dobbs Broughton, and Musselburgh. "'Mr. Broughton told me when I was last here,' said Crosby, "'that there would be no difficulty about it. "'And it was renewed then, wasn't it?' "'Of course it was, for two months, "'but he was speaking of a continuation of renewal.' "'I'm afraid we can't do that, Mr. Crosby.' "'I'm afraid we can't, indeed. Money is so awful tight.' "'Of course I must pay what you choose to charge me.' "'It isn't that, Mr. Crosby. The bill is out for collection, and must be collected. "'In times like these we must draw ourselves in a little, you know. Two hundred and fifty pounds isn't a great deal of money, you will say, "'but every little helps, you know. And besides, of course, we go upon a system. "'Business is business, and must not be made pleasure of.' I should have had a great deal of pleasure in doing this for you, but it can't be done in the way of business. When will Broughton be here? He may be in at any time. I can't say when. I suppose he's down at the court now. What court? Capital court. I suppose I can see him there, said Crosby. If you catch him, you can see him, of course. But what good will it do you, Mr Crosby? I'd tell you that we can't do it for you. If Broughton was here this moment, it wouldn't make the slightest difference. Now, Mr. Crosby had an idea that Mr. Musselborough, though he sat in Dobbs Broughton's seat, and kept on his hat, and balanced his chair on two legs, was in truth nothing more than a clerk. He did not quite understand the manner in which the affairs of the establishment were worked, though he had been informed that Mrs. Van Siever was one of the partners. That Dobbs Broughton was the managing man who really did the business, he was convinced, and he did not therefore like to be answered peremptorily by such a one as Musselburgh. "'I should wish to see Mr. Broughton,' he said. "'You can call again, or you can go down to the court, if you like it. But you may take this as an answer from me, that the bill can't be renewed by us.' At this moment the door of the room was opened, and Dobbs Broughton himself came into it. His face was not at all pleasant, and any one might have seen, with half an eye, that the money market was a great deal tighter than he liked it to be. "'Here is Mr. Crosby, here, about that bill,' said Musselbra. "'Mr. Crosby must take up his bill, that's all,' said dobbs Broughton. "'But it doesn't suit me to take it up,' said Crosby. "'Then you must take it up without suiting you,' said dobbs Broughton. It might have been seen, with half an eye, that Mr. Broughton did not like the state of the money-market, and it might also be seen with the other half, that he had been endeavouring to mitigate the bitterness of his dislike by alcoholic aid.' Musselburgh at once perceived that his patron and partner was half-drunk, and Crosby was aware that he had been drinking. But nevertheless it was necessary that something more should be said. The bill would be due to-morrow, was payable at Crosby's bankers, and, as Mr. Crosby too well knew, there were no funds there for the purpose. And there were other purposes very needful, for which Mr. Crosby's funds were at the present moment unfortunately by no means sufficient. He stood for a few moments thinking what he would do, whether he would leave the drunken man in his office and let the bill take its chance, or whether he would make one more effort for an arrangement. He did not for a moment believe that Broughton himself was subject to any pecuniary difficulty. Broughton lived in a big house, as rich men live, and had a name for commercial success. It never occurred to Crosby that it was a matter of great moment to Dobbs Broughton himself that the bill should be taken up. "'Crosby still thought that Musselboro was his special enemy, "'and that Broughton had joined Musselboro in his hostility "'simply because he was too drunk to know better. "'You might, at any rate, answer me civilly, Mr. Broughton,' he said. "'I know nothing about civility with things as they are at present,' said Broughton. "'Civil, by God! "'There's nothing so civil as paying money when you owe it. "'Musselboro, reach me down the decanter and some glasses. "'Perhaps Mr. Crosby will wet his whistle.' "'He don't want any wine, nor you either,' said Musselboro. "'What's up now?' said Broughton, staggering across the room, "'towards a cupboard in which it was his custom to keep a provision of that comfort "'which he needed at the present moment. "'I suppose I may stand a glass of wine to a fellow in my own room, if I like it?' "'I will take no wine, thank you,' said Crosby. "'Then you can do the other thing. "'When I ask a gentleman to take a glass of wine, there is no compulsion. "'But about the bill there is compulsion. "'Do you understand that?' you may drink or let it alone but pay you must why mussy what do you think there's carter ricketts and carter i'm blessed if carter just now didn't beg for two months as though two months would be all the world to him and that for a trumpery five hundred pounds i never saw money like it is now never to this appeal musselboro made no reply not caring perhaps at the present moment to sustain his partner he still balanced himself in his chair and still kept his hat on his head even Mr. Crosby began to perceive that Mr. Musselboro's genius was in the Ascendant in Hook Court. "'I can hardly believe,' said Crosby, "'that things can be so bad that I cannot have a bill for two hundred and fifty pounds renewed "'when I am willing to pay for the accommodation. "'I have not done much in the way of bills, but I never had one dishonoured yet.' "'Don't let this be the first, said Dobbs Broughton. "'Not if I can prevent it,' said Crosby." "'But to tell you the truth, Mr. Broughton, my bill will be dishonoured unless I can have it renewed. If it does not suit you to do it, I suppose you can recommend me to someone who can make it convenient.' "'Why don't you go to your bankers?' said Musselboro. "'I never did ask my bankers for anything of the kind.' "'Then you should try what your credit with them is worth,' said Broughton. "'It isn't worth much here, as you can perceive. (laughs) Ha! Crosby, when he heard this, became very angry.' And Musselboro, perceiving this, got out of his chair, so that he might be in readiness to prevent any violence if violence were attempted. "'It really is no good your staying here,' he said. "'You see that Broughton has been drinking. There's no knowing what he may say or do.' "'You be blowed,' said Broughton, who had taken the armchair as soon as Musselboro had left it. "'You may believe me in the way of business,' continued Musselboro, "'when I tell you that it really does not suit us to renew the bill. We are pressed ourselves, and we must press others.' "'And who will do it for me?' said Crosby, almost in despair. "'There are Burton and Bangles there, the wine-merchants down the yard. "'Perhaps they may accommodate you. "'It's all in their line, but I'm told they charge uncommon dear. "'I don't know Messrs Burton and Bangles,' said Crosby. "'That needn't stand in your way. "'You tell them where you come from, and they'll make inquiry. "'If they think it's about right, they'll give you the money, "'and if they don't, they won't.' Mr. Crosby then left the office, without exchanging another word with Dobbs Broughton, and went down into Hook Court. As he descended the stairs, he turned over in his mind the propriety of going to Messrs Burton and Bangles, with a view of relieving himself from his present difficulty. He knew that it was ruinous. Dealings even with such men as Dobbs Broughton and Musselburgh, whom he presumed to be milder in their greed than Burton and Bangles, were, all of them, steps on the road to ruin. But what was he to do? If his bill were dishonoured, the fact would certainly become known at his office, and he might even ultimately be arrested. At the doorway at the bottom of the stairs he stood for some moments looking over at Burton and Bangles, and he did not at all like the aspect of the establishment. Inside the office he could see a man standing with a cigar in his mouth, very resplendent with a new hat, with a hat remarkable for the bold upward curve of its rim and this man was copiously decorated with a chain and seals, hanging about widely over his waistcoat. He was leaning with his back against the counter, and was talking to someone on the other side of it. There was something in the man's look and manner that was utterly repulsive to Crosby. He was more vulgar to the eye even than Musselboro, and his voice, which Crosby could hear as he stood in the other doorway, was almost as detestable as that of Dobbs Broughton in his drunkenness. Crosby did not doubt that this was either Burton or Bangles, and that the man standing inside was either Bangles or Burton. He could not bring himself to accost these men, and tell them of his necessities, and propose to them that they should relieve him. In spite of what Musselboro had just said to him, he could not believe it possible that he should succeed were he to do so without some introduction. So he left Hook Court, and went out into the lane, hearing as he went the loud voice of the man with the turned-up hat and the chain but what was he to do at the outset of his pecuniary troubles when he first found it necessary to litigate some question with the de courcy people and withstand the web which mortimer gazebee wove so assiduously his own attorney had introduced him to dobbs broughton and the assistance which he had needed had come to him at any rate without trouble he did not especially like mr broughton and when Mr. Broughton first invited him to come and eat a little bit of dinner, he had told himself with painful remorse that in his early days he had been accustomed to eat his little bits of dinner with people of a different kind. But there had been nothing really painful in this, since his marriage with a daughter of the de Courses, by which marriage he had intended to climb to the highest pinnacle of social eating and drinking. He had gradually found himself to be falling in the scale of such matters, and could bring himself to dine with a Dobbs Broughton without any violent pain but now he had fallen so low that dobbs broughton had insulted him and he was in such distress that he did not know where to turn for ten pounds mr gazebee had beaten him at litigation and his own lawyer had advised him that it would be foolish to try the matter further in his marriage with the noble daughter of the de Courcys, he had allowed the framers of the de Courcy settlement to tie him up in such a way that now, even when chance had done so much for him in freeing him from his wife, he was still bound to the de Courcy faction. Money had been paid away, on his behalf, as alleged by Mr. Gazebee, like running water. Money for furniture, money for the lease of a house, money when he had been separated from his wife, money while she was living abroad. It had seemed to him that he had been made to pay the entire support of the female moiety of the de Courcy family, which had settled itself at Baden-Baden, from the day, and in some respects from before the day, on which his wife had joined that moiety. He had done all in his power to struggle against these payments, but every such struggle had only cost him more money. Mr. Gazebee had written to him the civilest of notes, but every note seemed to cost him money, every word of each note seemed to find its way into some bill his wife had died, and her body had been brought back, with all the pomp befitting the body of an earl's daughter, that it might be laid with the old de Courcy dust at his expense. The embalming of her dear remains had cost a wondrous sum, and was a terrible blow upon him. All these items were showered upon him by Mr. Gazebee with the most courteously worded demands for settlement, as soon as was convenient. And then, when he applied that Lady Alexandrina's small fortune should be made over to him, according to a certain agreement under which he had made over all his possessions to his wife, should she have survived him, Mr. Gazebee expressed a mild opinion that he was wrong in his law, and blandly recommended an amicable lawsuit. The amicable lawsuit was carried on. His own lawyers seemed to throw him over. Mr. Gazebee was successful in everything. No money came to him. Money was demanded from him on old scores and on new scores, and all that he received consoled him for what he had lost was a mourning ring, with his wife's hair, for which, with sundry other morning rings, he had to pay, and an introduction to Mr. Dobbs Broughton. To Mr. Dobbs Broughton he owed five hundred pounds, and as regarded a bill for the one half of that sum which was due to-morrow, Mr. Dobbs Broughton had refused to grant him renewal for a single month. I know no more uncomfortable walking than that which falls to the lot of men who go into the city to look for money, and who find none. Of all the lost steps trodden by men, surely the steps lost after that fashion are the most melancholy. It is not only that they are so vain, but that they are accompanied by so killing a sense of shame. To wait about in dingy rooms which look on to bare walls and their approach through some hook court, or to keep appointments at a low coffee-house to which tristings the money-lender will not trouble himself to come unless it pleases him. To be civil, almost suppliant, to a cunning knave, whom the borrower loathes, to be refused thrice, and then cheated with his eyes open on the fourth attempt, to submit himself to vulgarity of the foulest kind, and to have to seem to like it, to be badgered, reviled, and at last accused of want of honesty by the most fraudulent of mankind, and at the same time to be clearly conscious of the ruin that is coming. This is the fate of him who goes into the city to find money, not knowing where it is to be found, Crosby went along the lane into Lombard Street, and then he stood still for a moment to think. Though he knew a good deal of affairs in general, he did not quite know what would happen to him if his bill should be dishonoured. That somebody would bring it to him noted, and require him instantly to put his hand into his pocket and bring out the amount of the bill, plus the amount of certain expenses, he thought that he did know. And he knew that were he in trade he would become a bankrupt. And he was well aware that such an occurrence would prove him to be insolvent. But he did not know what his creditors would immediately have the power of doing, that the fact of the bill having been dishonoured would reach the board under which he served, and therefore also the fact that he had had recourse to such bill transactions, this alone was enough to fill him with dismay. In early life he had carried his head so high, he had been so much more than a mere government clerk, that the idea of the coming disgrace almost killed him. Would it not be well that he should put an end to himself, and thus escape? What was there in the world now, for which it was worth his while to live? Lily, whom he had once gained, and by that gain had placed himself high in all hopes of happiness and riches, whom he had then thrown away from him, and who had again seemed to be almost within his reach, Lily had so refused him that he knew not how to approach her with a further prayer. And had she not refused him, how could he have told her of his load of debt? As he stood at the corner where the lane runs into Lombard Street, he came for a while to think almost more of Lily than of his rejected bill. Then, as he thought of both his misfortunes together, he asked himself whether a pistol would not conveniently put an end to them together. At that moment a loud, harsh voice greeted his ear. "Hallo, Crosby! What brings you so far east?' "'One does not often see you in the city?' "'It was the voice of Sir Raffle Buffle, "'which in former days had been very odious to Crosby's ears, "'for Sir Raffle Buffle had once been the presiding genius "'of the office to which Crosby still belonged.' "'No, indeed, not very often,' said Crosby, smiling. "'Who can tell, who has not felt it, "'the pain that goes to the forcing of such smiles?' "'But Sir Raffle was not an acutely observant person "'and did not see that anything was wrong.' "'I suppose you are doing a little business,' said Sir Raffle. "'If a man has kept a trifle of money by him, this certainly is the time for turning it. You have always been wide awake about such things.' "'No, indeed,' said Crosby. "'If he could only make up his mind that he would shoot himself, would it not be a pleasant thing to inflict some condign punishment on this odious man before he left the world?' "'But Crosby knew that he was not going to shoot himself.' And he knew also that he had no power of inflicting condign punishment on Sir Raffle Buffle. He could only hate the man and curse him inwardly. "Aha," said Sir Raffle, "you wouldn't be here unless you knew where a good thing is to be picked up." But I must be off. I'm on the Rocky Mountain Canal Company Directory. I'm not above taking my two guineas a day. Goodbye, my boy. Remember me to the old optimist. And so Sir Raffle passed on, leaving Crosbie still standing at the corner of the lane. What was he to do? This interruption had at least seemed to drive Lily from his mind, and to send his ideas back to the consideration of his pecuniary difficulties. He thought of his own bank, a West End establishment at which he was personally known to many of the clerks, and where he had been heretofore treated with great consideration. But of late his balances had been very low, and more than once he had been reminded that he had overdrawn his account. He knew well. the distinguished firm of Bounce, Bounce, and Bounce, would not cash a bill for him, or lend him money without security. He did not even dare to ask them to do so. On a sudden he jumped into a cab and was driven back to his office. A thought had come upon him. He would throw himself upon the kindness of a friend there. Hitherto he had contrived to hold his head so high above the clerks below him, so high before the commissioners who were above him, that none there suspected him to be a man in difficulty. "'It not seldom happens that a man's character stands too high for his interest, "'so high that it cannot be maintained, and so high that any fall will be dangerous. "'And so it was with Crosby and his character at the General Committee Office. "'The man to whom he was now thinking of applying as his friend was a certain Mr. Butterwell, "'who had been his predecessor in the Secretary's Chair, "'and who now filled the less onerous but more dignified position of a Commissioner. "'Mr. Crosby had somewhat despised Mr. Butterwell.' and had of late years not been averse to showing that he did so. He had snubbed Mr. Butterwell, and Mr. Butterwell, driven to his wits' end, had tried a fall or two with him. In all these struggles Crosby had had the best of it, and Butterwell had gone to the wall. Nevertheless, for the sake of official decency, and from certain wise remembrances of the sources of official comfort and official discomfort, Mr. Butterwell had always maintained a show of outward friendship with the secretary. They smiled and were gracious— called each other Butterwell and Crosby, and abstained from all cat-and-dog absurdities. Nevertheless, it was the frequently expressed opinion of every clerk in the office that Mr. Butterwell hated Mr. Crosby like poison. This was the man to whom Crosby suddenly made up his mind that he would have recourse. As he was driven back to his office, he resolved that he would make a plunge at once at the difficulty. He knew that Butterwell was fairly rich, and he knew also that he was good-natured with that sort of sleepy good-nature, which is not active for philanthropic purposes, but which dislikes to incur the pain of refusing. And then Mr. Butterwell was nervous, and if the thing were managed well, he might be cheated out of an assent, before time had been given him, in which to pluck up courage for refusing. But Crosby doubted his own courage also, fearing that if he gave himself time for hesitation, he would hesitate, and that hesitating he would feel the terrible disgrace of the thing and not do it. So, without going to his own desk, or ridding himself of his hat, he went at once to Butterwell's room. When he opened the door, he found Mr. Butterwell alone, reading the Times. "'Butterwell,' said he, beginning to speak, before he had even closed the door, "'I have come to you in great distress. "'I wonder whether you can help me. "'I want you to lend me five hundred pounds. "'It must be for not less than three months.' Mr. Butterwell dropped the paper from his hands and stared at the secretary over his spectacles. End of chapter 43